Hi, everyone. Welcome to the May 14th, 2021 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a little bit different setup right now. We have a couple different people out. Uh, uh, David is out this week, and then we had some folks that are be able to join us remotely, and things have changed. Long story short, it's a nice, cozy studio with Patty and myself. Three great people joining us remotely. So let's get right to it. It should be a great show. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention announced new guidance this week saying that those who are fully vaccinated can stop wearing masks indoors if in an uncrowded area. The new guidance is already triggering changes to many mask mandates throughout the state. Meanwhile, the State House and Health Insurance Committee voted down a Republican proposal this week that would have banned employers from requiring to be vaccinated and companies from requiring vaccination for service. Pat Cahoon from West, where we started this one, breaking news for this taping. While some folks are going to watch us at 8 o'clock tonight, uh, just now taping a little bit after 12.15, uh, we already know that it's changing for the state. Announcement Governor Polis, some things are optional, indoor, outdoor. The rules are getting complicated. Uh, is it going to be a messy few weeks before it's officially done? It's going to be a very complicated few weeks. And in fact, it was 24 hours right before Polis made his announcement that the CDC tweeted its new policy, which threw everything into chaos because in Colorado, it it already contradicted the mask mandate that Polis had in Colorado for grocery stores and things like that. So that's already shifted. It looks like what we're going to have is much more business choices. There will be some mandatory mask rules that do, that coincide with the CDC, public transportation, Schools must come up with a plan, but in businesses, it's going to be largely up to the businesses, and that's going to be very, very tough for people if they want to enforce it in restaurants. Will people want to keep their employees safe by mandating some mask wearing? Same for retail establishments. So it's confusing not just in Colorado, but around the country. And in Denver, we're still waiting to see what Denver will come out with in response to what Polis just said, in response to what the CDC just said. So all we know is Polis did also say we're about 56% of Coloradans who are eligible have had one vaccination. That's nowhere near herd immunity. He says he, Coloradans say between 75 and 80% want to do it. He's encouraging everyone to go out and get vaccinated, which is a good thing to do while you're waiting to find out what the mask rules are. Here, here. Uh, one of our three guests joining us remotely, Marianne Goodland, Chief State House Reporter for Colorado Politics. Marianne, it's wonderful to have you with us. You're there right in the thick of things. But, you know, speaking of confusing policies going back and forth, being at the State House, you know that feeling firsthand. Uh, how do you think the reactions to the changes in the CDC are going to be embraced and then modified by state leaders? Well, uh, I just got a, a, an update from governor's office that said that um, unvaccinated people must continue to wear a mask on indoors and that's going to be um, I think is, is going to get some some negative reaction those who are fully vaccinated don't have to wear a mask unless the setting requires it as and this goes back to what Patty just said this one I thought interesting schools and child care a mask is required unless the teacher the staff or the caregiver is vaccinated uh, so this just adds another layer of confusion, I think, to what people are supposed to do in these vaccine settings. Um, I want to go a little bit to that House uh, Health and Insurance Committee hearing this week. Uh, they had more than 100 people mostly in favor of this bill signed up to testify. If you like conspiracy theories, this was the hearing for you. I think we heard them all, even about vaccines that have nothing to do with COVID. Uh, the bill's outcome, however, was never in question, and it died on a party-line vote. 
uh, the majority of the medical professionals who showed up to testify asked the committee to stand for science and not anti-vaxxer misinformation. Uh, as we go to our next uh, remote guest, Natasha Gardner, freelance journalist, uh, confusion's kind of been the rule of the day. But I got to believe, too, this is a pretty uh, it's a watershed moment because before the state said this is the policy and certain companies would say we have masks or don't have masks, you weren't able to kind of blame somebody higher up the chain. So we had a lot of people, whether it be a grocery clerk or a poor person serving you meals at a restaurant, saying it's the company's policy, I just work here. Then they could eventually say, hey, it's a state rule. Now we're going back to, hey, it's now our company's rule or this is how we do it. Do you anticipate more conflicts in this confusion? I really hope not, but I think the potential is certainly there. I mean, small business owners from the beginning of the pandemic have been asked to do so much, um, so much in sort of policing the pandemic, policing masks and doing everything in between. And this is going to add another layer of complexity for them and, and their employees. You know, this is a moment that if we were in this massive press conference, and this happens all the time at the end, they ask, does anyone have any more questions? Um, I would be in the back raising my hand, jumping out of my seat saying, yes, I have so so many questions. And I think that's where most Americans are right now and Coloradans. So this is going to require a little bit of patience as the details start to come out more and more. But I think another key point to remember is that for many people, this is still going to be a complicated decision, regardless of what the CDC says, regardless of what a state law might be or a municipalities, because this is still something people are experiencing in their homes based on their own um, safety our ideas and comfort level related to that. The CDC made it very clear that if you, um, for instance, have uh, an immune uh, suppressed immune system, you're going to want to talk to your doctor about these rules. Um, I know that as a parent, one of the things I was doing right away was Googling what impact does this have because I have a child who is less than 12 years old. Um, certainly, we've seen those vaccines move in such a quick way and we're opening that uh, them up now for that 12 and up um, age group. That's great. But if you, say, have a five-year-old or a seven year old, and it might be business as usual. Plus, I, I just have a feeling that my child isn't going to be so keen when I tell him to put on a mask and I don't wear one myself. Uh, not being so keen at that idea is probably going to be a theme for that, Natasha. I think you're uh, right. Our, our third guest joining us remotely, Penfield Tate, attorney with, with Tate Law and a former state lawmaker. Penn, it's great to have you back. Um, I guess, I mean, I understand the point with governor. He has to govern for the entire state. So his the rules that his office will announce will affect Yuma and Denver. And then you have Mayor Hancock saying, here's what's going to impact Denver, which there's a lot more people walking down Main Street in Denver than there is in Yuma. Uh, what do you think is going to be the ramifications of the different policies depending where you live and if you're in a business or a city or a county? What's going to happen? Well, Dominic, it's good to be here. The bottom line is, it's a confusing mess. Um, and the best advice you could give anyone is, when you walk out your front door, wear a mask and have it with you at all times. Because you never know which shop you go into, the shop owner is going to require you to wear a mask. You never know which person you're going to be walking by who's going to give you stink eye or say something crazy if you're not wearing your mask. And for your own safety, you don't know who you're going to be around that, that has never been vaccinated, never had any intentions of being vaccinated, and, and may be a carrier of the disease. While, while I applaud beginning to opening up society, this hodgepodge way of doing it is just too confusing for most people. 
feel badly for, for parents with small kids because you really don't know how to protect yourself or your kids except just to be uh, exercise an abundance of caution. Well, speaking of exercising an abundance of caution, I think that brings us to our next topic. If you commute using I-70, you might want to plan a backup route next week. May 21st through 24th, both, both eastbound and westbound lanes of I-70 will be closed in preparation for a project dubbed the Mile High Shift. The Mile High Shift will be moving six lanes of I-70 from the viaduct to new westbound lanes between Brighton Boulevard and Colorado Boulevard. The viaduct will then be demolished in order to create new eastbound lanes. Marianne, we start with you on this one. I think people have been looking forward to seeing some progress with the whole project on I-70, but uh, with progress comes pain. Uh, what do you think about this next big mile-high shift? I, the timing of this is just is absolutely great and perfect. It's just at the start of the summer tourist season. This is going to leave an indelible, and I don't mean good, uh, impression of the Mile High City for those who are coming back to Colorado for the first time in more than a year. Uh, for a state that has had very little money to devote to transportation, uh, I-70 is, or I-25 is usually quite the mess and usually I-70 is its stepchild. Nobody on either side of the debate over transportation and its funding have been happy about any of this. Don't look for uh, rainbows or, or kumbaya moments. And as we're taping this, uh, the legislature, the Senate, is having a huge debate about transportation funding that appears to have very little to do with actually putting money toward roads and bridges and more about convincing people not to drive cars. So we'll see how uh, that argument comes out and what that means for the future of transportation in Colorado. Natasha, I personally, as a driver on I-70, infrequently, but enough, I won't miss the bumps of the viaduct or being underneath it, fearing, is this the day this all thing comes down? But I also remember the T-Rex project going down I-25 and navigating those kind of lanes for another year and a half on the new I-70 lanes will be a little tricky in itself. How do you feel Denver's going to embrace the mile-high shift? Well, people love to complain about traffic. So certainly we'll start there. People will complain about traffic. And that's going to continue to be the, the case here. You know, I, I actually spent a lot of time in my youth driving around to construction sites. I had a family member who worked um, in construction. So that was just something that we did. So I really enjoyed during the pandemic being able to drive down I-70 and, and someone else is driving and I'm looking out the window sort of watching the progress because it is an incredibly massive project and we're entering this next new phase. And so it'll be interesting to watch how that shifts as well. Um, I think that with a, the 18 plus months or 18 months of, of traffic and congestion that might result from this um, isn't going to be a surprise to anyone who uses I-70 on a normal basis, whether you're getting stopped in Denver or stopped in the mountains. I-70 is just a difficult um, patch of road to, to travel through during many parts of the year. I mean, even earlier this week, a, a truck that was carrying lemons caught on fire and shut down traffic. And there is no way to make lemonade out of that situation. Traffic on I-70 <laughs> is just that. Uh, I think even Joey Bunch be able to be very proud of uh, the, the lemons to lemonade point there, Natasha. Penn, um, Anytime you see this kind of progress, it's a, it's, a, it's a big moment for the city. We're, you know, we're going to be getting off of the viaduct and onto new lanes, but we'll be using space meant for just westbound for both eastbound and westbound. It's going to be tight. Is, uh, how do you think the reaction is going to be? 
You know, I, I think the reaction will be primarily negative for a host of reasons. Uh, I have issues with calling this progress. I am one of many who was opposed to this project from the beginning as it continues to do violence to the Globeville, Illyria, and Swansea neighborhoods that have been impacted by environmental um, pollution um, and degradation for decades. This did not have to be done, but the Hickenlooper and Hancock administrations decided this is what they wanted to see. So it moves forward. Um, it, it's going to be a mess this week, and Marianne's right. They couldn't have picked a worse time, except maybe had they picked the Memorial Day weekend to start uh, this itself, um, and then it would have been compounded. But it's going to be a mess for a long time to come, um, but hopefully at some point uh, the construction is completed, and then we'll see what we have. Uh, Patty, mask is coming off for some people if it's a Tuesday near a school or away from something else on a, on a day that ends of the three. And you have this whole highway being changed. That means a lot more people are going to be out and about. Uh, is it going to get messy this year? Well, it's already getting messier. I was on I-25 the other day and in traffic. I was like, wow, I haven't really seen that for a while. It's amazing, actually, that we've come this far. When you look at DIA, which doesn't seem to be making any progress at all, although I know they will argue and say they are, um, that I-70 has gotten as far as it has. There's an interesting program tomorrow, a free day over underneath I-70 and above I-70, so you can kind of walk over the viaduct, you can look underneath. I think they have 25 exhibits of the history of interstates and that neighborhood, which is given what Penn had said, will be interesting to see, like how that neighborhood was completely screwed over when I-70 bisected it. So get out there, look at CDOT. It's got the rules. See what, we've, what we're leaving and what we're going into, which we can predict even if you don't go to that exhibit is going to be a very, very messy year. A new safe outdoor space to shelter unhoused citizens is scheduled to be built in the parking lot of Park Hill Methodist Church. Some residents in the neighborhood have expressed their concern with the location and have now filed a lawsuit to stop it. The suit is filed against Colorado Village Collaborative, the city and county of Denver, Park Hill Methodist Church, and its lead pastor. Natasha, we start with you on this one. Um, it, it's not as if there's ever a whole lot of fans for this, but we have seen some success from these organized places. In a parking lot, they're, they're managed for all the different things that the unmanaged uh, encampments bring with them. Uh, do you think there's going to be, uh, is this going to halt more progress of these managed sites because it's running into legal issues? I think first and foremost, it's going to lead to a whole lot of discussion, which in these situations is probably not a bad uh, process. I mean, conversations need to happen on this topic. And it's worth taking a step back. Of course, um, how we how we work with and help our unhoused populations is something the city, the metro, Colorado have been dealing with for many, many years. Um, in particular, when tiny homes kind of became popular and they were looking for places for these to go, this became a question of putting them in Globeville and then putting them in five points. And the question of where else in the city could we put these? Are they connected to services? These conversations continue to, to go on. But I, in particular, remember when this this conversation, at least I first heard of this conversation of putting some of these homes in churches' parking lots. And at first I was very intrigued by it because it was a very unique way of sort of addressing the issue. And a lot of people, um, because it was a unique and interesting idea, have started being interested in it. And now we're moving to the next stage of, OK, 
okay, can we implement this? There's been some sort of pilot program, some, some mini options already happening. This would be the next stage of, can we put this in other parts of our city? How would this interact with um, the neighborhood around it? And, and what does this look like? Does this help help solve the, the issues, the crisis that we're struggling with our unhoused population? So I, I'm, it would be easy to say that, oh, this is a new thing. It's not. And it would also be easy to say this will end the conversation. It's not going to. We're going to be talking about this for a long time. Penn, I can see uh, any uh, church, temple, uh, mosque wanting to do something with their parking lot, their facilities, to help their fellow man. I mean, it's in the holy book of almost any religion you can think of. So I can see a church wanting to do this. And if they're going to do it in a managed fashion, I can see some pro-arguments for it. But I also get where the neighbors are coming from. How is this going to play out for Park Hill? You know, I, I don't know how it's going to play out. I, you know, I... When I think about this, uh, remember just two years ago during the last municipal elections, I think the, the plight of the unhoused and the growth of the unhoused population was probably the biggest issue um, facing us in addition to the hyper um, gentrification of the city and development. Um, and it's unfortunate that this administration has spent the last two years since the last election doing essentially nothing. Um, and so this was a concept that was raised during that election cycle. I and others championed doing this. Is it the perfect solution? No. Is it the only solution? No. But we have to do something. And these small managed sites that are contained, that are surrounded by support services like mobile laundries, mobile showers, mobile um, you know, bathroom facilities are one way to begin to address the situation because what none of us in the city want is these um, shelters and sites showing up on every green belt and every sidewalk um, throughout the city. People are, are fed up with that and they're tired of it. And if, and if you don't want that, you have to be receptive to some other alternatives. So it's unfortunate the church has been sued that when they've decided to make their land available for this, but I think we've got to try some things like this. Petty, we've seen success from these programs at other places, but will this lawsuit have a chilling effect for other churches or organizations trying to do the same thing? It might with some, but I think it will also persuade others that it's the right thing to do. It's been over a year since the safe camping site uh, service providers pushed this idea with the city. You might remember the city had two different possibilities. It was the Coliseum and one on in Five Points for a safe camping sites that would be authorized by the city. Neighborhoods objected, so those were both pulled off the table. So the service providers came up with the smart idea of going to the churches. Those sites don't have to be approved by the city. City council has to approve leasing city-owned land. This is privately owned land. So the two opened in church parking lots in December. And although there was some concern early on, they've gone fine. I think it's great that there's going to be one in Park Hill. There should be one in every single district in this city. Mary Ann, we end this topic with you. Uh, is the, when we see reactions like this, do we think the idea is going to grow? I mean, it's one of the first times people have any optimism about any solution that at least addresses a piece of the problem that are folks who are homeless in Denver. This is uh, another byproduct of a city that really has struggled to find a way to solve the problem of the unhoused. But I think that the lawsuit wades into perhaps a, a, a kind of a dangerous area. It's easier to pick on poor people than to pick on politicians and zoning boards. You know, maybe the, the people in Park Hill need to leave the church alone and go to a city council meeting instead. 
And and mistreating the housing, the unhoused, is sort of a dicey moral equation to begin with. Doing it with a church, that's just asking to be uh, smited. Smited indeed. Let's get a quick take on this last topic. U.S. Representative Liz Cheney was removed from her leadership position this week by her fellow Republican colleagues. Colorado Republican representatives had differing opinions on the matter, with Representative Ken Buck voting to retain Cheney and Representative Lowen Boebert voting for removal. Meanwhile, former assistant minority leader in the State House, Cole Wist, added his name to a letter signed by 100 national Republican leaders calling on the party to adhere to a core set of principles. Uh, Penn, we're going to start with you on this one. Um, it doesn't seem like this uh, fight within the GOP nationally or even in Colorado is going away anytime soon. No, it isn't. It's going to be long and painful. And although um, I rarely agree with Liz Cheney, this situation sort of exemplifies um, what I often say that no one's wrong all the time. Um, Liz Cheney is absolutely right. If the party um, is stuck choosing between devotion and fealty to one guy and upholding the Constitution of the United States, I would hope they'd argue to uphold the Constitution of the United States. But this debate is not going to end anytime soon. Votes between Buck and Boebert show that the argument isn't over even in Colorado? Which shows that Colorado is very split, but good for Ken Buck to follow what Liz Cheney was saying, too. Let's follow the rule of law. If you're conservative, you go for conservative policies. You don't blindly follow Trump because he happens to have some popularity right now. So her her position was great. Ken Buck was good to stand for it. And it's no surprise that Boebert would go the other way. Marianne, do you think we're going to see uh, uh, this same sort of divide in in the folks that at the state house? Did you get a sense of the same sort of divide there? No, because um, I don't think, um, given the things that have been going on at the Capitol in the past uh, the past couple of weeks and what we are going into with the the last three weeks or so of the session, this is this has not been um, anywhere near the top of anybody's priority list. That said, um, Cole West is a Republican who, of principle long before Liz Cheney made it cool. Um, a lot of folks see him as the moderate future of the Republican Party if there is another wave after Trumpism and, and going to that. Uh, Buck was asked this morning something that I found really, really weird. If he worried about Donald Trump turning on him, and his response was, I've been looking for an exit strategy for six and a half years. If that's the exit strategy, that's okay. Very, a very interesting sort of comment on, from him. I totally agree with that. And Natasha, will let you wrap this up. Uh, your thoughts on how this might have ramifications in Colorado? Well, I think one thing I would say um, in particular about media coverage is I think there's sometimes an assumption that there's this major rift in the Republican Party. And I won't disagree with that. I think you could say that about the other political party or any of the minor political parties as well. Um, But in particular here, when you have so many people who are voting against Cheney's um, words and and actions, I think that the media maybe should take a step back. And instead of, of treating it as maybe an equal split or emphasizing that, maybe also also accept the possibility that this is actually just the party. It is time for a very favorite part of the show, Disgrace the Week. As always, Ms. Calhoun, please start us off. 
Well, I would like to say the newsmakers who make their announcements while we are filming the show, so eight hours later, we look completely off to, out of touch. But I will say right now, one of the things that came up at noon was Kim Day resign is announcing her retirement at DIA. We've seen the construction there. When she goes, can we please have a new message on the train when you get off that explains we're under construction and apologizes to the travelers? Marianne, we go to you for your disgrace of the week. Got to go to Lauren Boebert. And, and there's a lot to pick from from her this week. But her blaming Joe Biden for Chick-fil-A's condiment uh, shortage, it's just, come on, Lauren, please. Will you just focus Natasha, we go to you for your disgrace of the week. Another week, another mass shooting in Colorado with six people murdered in Colorado Springs um, in, a, in a city, that, in a state that is still grieving from another mass shooting. Um, and frankly, we'll probably um, be grieving forever because this, the impact of gun violence on our state has been so immense. Yeah, it was a little shocking to see the, 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 the biggest mass shooting since two months ago. That, that, was, that was very telling this week. Penn, we go to you. What's your disgrace of the week? Well, I agree with all of those, and Natasha grabbed mine, so I will just pivot and say, you know, I was saddened to see the, the escalation of violence in the Middle East. Um, if it's one thing I hope the Biden administration does is, is really take a serious approach to try to tackle that situation. The last administration sending your son-in-law to do something he wasn't trained to do wasn't the best way to bring about a lasting resolution. Time to say something nice rather quickly. Patty? Amber McReynolds has done a lot for fair elections. Let's hope she can do the same for the post office. You're here. Marianne, we go to you for your say something nice. Well, Patty just took mine, so I think I'm going to go to uh, uh, Senate Democrats who this week are looking to make diapers much easier and more uh, much easier for people of low income. You have no idea what a hard struggle that is when you have to make a choice between diapers and other necessities of life, and they are a necessity of life. Natasha, we go to you. One of my pandemic excursions is going around and visiting Denver's public art. And um, thankfully, we have some new additions. It looks like three new ones. There's a great article in Colorado Politics about those. Um, they have certainly been added to my list. And Penn, wrap it up for us. Yeah, I, I just want to thank people in the community. Although it's a confusing mess, we have the mess regarding rules because people have been responsible. They've been masking up. They've been socially distancing. And more importantly, um, in this state, we've been getting vaccinated. So I want to thank everybody for that and, and say good work to all of us. Here, here, And that is all the time we have for this show. But I want to remind everybody we're just 12 days away from our very special online event on May 26th. You can be part of the show. We'll have all of our great folks here. But we, will, we want to answer your questions. You can submit your questions via email to cio at pbs12.org. And then you can tune in on Facebook, YouTube, or our website to watch the whole discussion. Any question is welcome. We're excited to have you be part of the show that you've made possible for now almost 30 years. I'm Donald Gazzuti. On behalf of everybody here at PBS 12, thank you so much for watching. Good night.